chapter 13. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, right, Jacob, as you recited this this morning, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You almost don't even need to pick up your Bible because you memorize it. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, that'd be great. I wouldn't need to borrow a friend's uh, tractor to plow the driveway in the spring. I could just say, and move it. But I have not love. I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. That many people, even in the world, know this chapter. Might even quote it. And even as believers, I think, we really forget the spiritual sandwich that this is the meat of. There's gifts on both sides. There's the bread of gifts on both sides in chapter 12 and 14. That put this chapter into context. It's not wishy-washy love. That There's something more to this love that he's talking about. It's not just Valentine's Day, chocolates and flowers in chapter 13. It's the Christian life. He says, if I have all faith that I could remove mountains. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. Is Jesus lying here? Did Jesus just say, if we just had faith as Little is almost that mustard seed, that sesame seed on top of the Big Mac. If we had that much faith, we could move that mountain. He said, if you do, it'll move. And nothing will be impossible for you. That's crazy. But it's truth. He said it. So even if you had that faith and could move a mountain, or even... If you were that rich young ruler and you did obey Jesus and give all your goods to feed the poor, or if, like some of these people in, the, in Asia, give their body to be burned, burn themselves alive to try and gain favor with their God, or even as a believer, being burned at the stake, that's not an easy way to go. Matthew 24, 9 says, Jesus says, and this I read the other day, and it's really been struggling with it in a sense, wrestling with it. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Jesus is looking at his disciples saying, they will kill you. They will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So as an aside there, why are we seeking to be loved by everybody? Why is we as believers, do we want everybody to like us? Is it because we're afraid that they're going to kill us? But isn't that what our Lord told us? Not all of us will die as martyrs. But in a sense, we should all live and expect to die for our faith one day. As I'm getting older, I'm starting to think, maybe that's the best way to go. Do I want to die at an old age home or... Do I want to be burned at a stake? I think spiritually, being burned at a stake is the better way to go. But do I really want to do that? 
Do I let myself be burned at the stake at the checkout counter and say, Jesus loves you? Or am I too afraid of that fire? (laughs) Am I too afraid of that storm? How will I face the hot fire? So if you think of it in a video game or a level up stat or a favorite sports star, even if you maxed out your personal spiritual stats, you had 100% faith, you put all your effort into getting the most faith so you can move a mountain. So you could just say, mountain move and, you know, all over the news, a mountain move today. We don't know why, right? I wonder if that's why some earthquakes happen. Do some people just have faith and something happened and they don't know that the person had faith? Or we're giving our body to be burned. Burn me. I'm first. You don't like Christians? Fine. Then burn me first. We're not hiding from persecution. Or we're a billionaire who made all our fortune in, in technology and we write a huge check to give it to the poor and we build a million orphanages but we don't love God. We don't really love others in it. We're really doing it as a show for ourselves. Right? Like Jesus said, don't let the left hand know what the right is doing. To give in secret, to fast in secret, to pray in secret and you're Heavenly Father will reward you opening, uh, openly, then we are nothing. If we think we're so great because we're being burned to the stake, we're so great because we're giving so much, we're nothing. If we give it all away without love, we profit nothing. We are nothing and we gain nothing. Then when we get to heaven, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You didn't love me. You didn't know what my love for you was. You thought you could earn it. You thought you could buy your way here. It doesn't work that way. Because love, God's love, is the eternal measure, is the eternal weight, is the eternal currency. Otherwise, it's vanity. It's empty gestures. It's thoughts and prayers as the world sees it. Galatians 6.3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I profit nothing, Paul says. There's no inheritance in the kingdom. Physical loss, giving away, whether it's burning your body or burning your wallet, doesn't equate to spiritual gain. Right? We want to, Jesus said, don't store up your treasures on earth where wrath and rust and Thief come and steal, but put your treasure in heaven, right? Where these things can't happen. But that doesn't necessarily equate to putting five bucks in the Japan jar. Doesn't necessarily mean you have five dollars in heaven. Maybe you did it because you really just want to go have sushi from the origin of sushi, right? In the same way, physical loss doesn't equate to spiritual gain. That this movement of poverty within the church, not having things, You're more spiritual somehow if you drive a beat-up car. Or being poor makes you more spiritual than someone who's rich. It doesn't earn you anything with God. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't call us to be poor or some to have poverty or to give up some, to, to give up our wealth that we might gain an inheritance or that others might come to Him, use our unrighteous mammon to win many. But Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, Not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to be poor. 
He says, I know how to abound. I know how to be rich. I know what it's like to have no groceries. I know what it's like to have so many groceries I don't know what to do with. Everywhere in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says I can be rich through Jesus strengthening me. It's hard to be rich. I can be poor. I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. But it's what is God calling us in this season of life to be and to be content in that. To use the wealth that he's given us to bless him and bless others. Or to live in our poverty and let that be a witness to others as well. To live as God would have us live. To not seek riches or luxury, but also not seek the appearance of fasting and poverty. So when you fast, comb your hair, shave your face, put on some deodorant. Don't walk around going, oh, I'm fasting for the Lord. Look at how weak and frail I am. There's no heavenly reward for that. The same way we go around, look, I don't spend money on anything. Well, is it just vanity? Maybe it's just looking for a reward from man. That's another message too. Because many will follow many who follow God will be poor. Many who follow God will be rich. One may send and one may go. Again, it comes down to us just comparing ourselves to each other. Because even the poorest here in America is vastly richer than others in other countries. So are you really poor? Have you lived on 30 cents a day? The important thing is that we need to be obedient to what God has called each of us to do. And again, if it's not out of love for Jesus and service to others, then it's pointless. It profits us nothing, and we are nothing, and we don't have the spiritual standing we don't the spiritual standing we think we do, unless we're standing on God's love. And we know that this is what God would have me do, and I'm doing this out of love for God and love for you. Let's go on and pick up in verse 4. It says, Love suffers long and is kind. Like, what is love after all that, right? Like, if we don't have love, what, well, what is it? So, this is love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices instead in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the first part of eight says, love never fails. So love, we have another list. We love lists this morning. I apparently do because we have another list here, but it's because the scripture gave me a list. So let's look at these things. It suffers long. That means patient. And I like the word suffers long because sometimes being patient really is suffering. Waiting in the hall, oh, being in traffic, oh, being in a long line at the DMV, Ah, waiting for your spouse to get dressed. Ah, whatever it is, it suffers long. That's love. Love is not, come on, let's go, get a car, honk, honk, honk. Love is like, okay, all right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean love is enjoying the, the suffering long. It just means that it suffers long. And what's long? What's long to you and me? 10 seconds? 10 minutes? 10 years? How long are we waiting for that love to come around. It's a good thing I waited eight years to get married. Otherwise, wouldn't have the love of my life, right? <laughs> I suffered long. And now she suffers long. But love is kind. It's kind. It doesn't mean that love doesn't joke around. 
But the heart of love is to be kind, not to hurt, but to bring joy. It's kind. It's gentle. It does not envy. Even if someone has something that we really want, we don't envy it for them because we're glad they have it. Oh, you got a cool new bike? You got a cool new toy? You got a Game Boy? You got a computer? You got a new job? You got a raise? You got married? Whatever it is, we're happy for them. We're excited for them. We're not like, how come I didn't get that thing that they have? Just like the law. Do not covet. Love, in a sense, is excited. Don't envy. Love also does not parade itself. I am so wonderful because I love her. Look at this big check I'm giving to charity. Look at how much love I have for this group of people. That's parading yourself. Or an actual parade. I don't need to throw my wife a parade. I could. And if I did, it would be about her. It wouldn't be about my love for her. Uh, I love my wife, right? <laughs> my wife knows I love her. I'm the best husband ever. That's not the parade to throw. The parade to throw is, my wife is so great. She makes, figured out how to make wonderful pizza. She puts up with my garbage. She takes care of our kids. She doesn't yell too much when I buy Legos or gun parts. She just goes, whatever you think is right. <laughs> doesn't parade itself. That's not love. So when the world shouts, love, prideful love, well, you know right away what they're parading is not love. The next one is not puffed up. Oh, I'm the greatest husband ever. Oh, I love my kids. I'm the best dad ever. I might be, but I'm not puffed up about it. Right? I'm not, I'm not that Thanksgiving Day float or balloon. It does not behave rudely. Love is not rude. Love might get angry. Love might have to tell a hard truth, but it's not rude about it. Love does not seek its own. When there's one last piece of pizza, no, honey, you have it. You have it. I love you. You have it. Thanks, honey. Right? <laughs> love also says thanks. <laughs> but it's not provoked. Poked, 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 poked. It doesn't flip the switch. Love should put up with that. Love thinks no evil. Now, these next few ones, doesn't mean that love is dumb. They, the world says love is blind. That's not what biblical love is. But love thinks no evil. Love will realize when evil is happening, will accept it when someone they love is doing evil, and not accept the evil, but accept the reality that this person is doing wrong. I need to do something about it. But what it means is when they think no evil, when I love my spouse and she does something, my first thought isn't, she's trying to hurt me, or she's out to get me, or she's out doing something she shouldn't be doing. My first thought is, okay, she probably just forgot to charge her phone and that's why she's not picking up, or oh, she probably didn't realize that she did this and it hurt me, right? Like it thinks no evil. The first thought is not the worst thought. And when it is the worst thought, love goes, hold on a second, let's be rational about this. It does not rejoice in iniquity. Love said, when you love someone and they do something wrong, when they fall, when they do the bad thing, you're not, yeah, yeah, they lost, they sinned, I knew they would. It's broken over it. It doesn't blab it out to everybody. Yeah, it might seek help, it might seek counsel, but it's not like, 
Do you know what my husband did? Or can you believe how bad my dad is? No, it doesn't rejoice in that iniquity because it loves it. Just like Noah's kids, they covered him. The ones that loved him covered him, walked backwards and covered him when Noah sinned and drank too much. That's what love does. It rejoices in truth. I love that. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in truth. Yes, the truth is one out. Yes, this, you know, whatever the truth is. That's why we as believers, if we're not rejoicing in the truth of God's Word, if we don't love the Word of God, well, I have to wonder, do we, do we have love in us if we don't love coming to His Word? Not coming to listen to me blab for an hour, but do we love God's Word? It bears all things. Again, it bears all things. This, this situation is hard. This person's grating on me. But I love them and I'm going to bear this burden. The Bible says bear one another's burdens. It believes all things. Again, not naively. Oh, well, my husband told me that he was just out with his friends and it was clearly he was out with somebody else that he shouldn't be. It doesn't naively think that. But it believes that, man, that there's, it has a hope. That things can get better because God said it can get better. And it hopes all things, again, not blindly. It believes and it hopes for the best to come out of a situation, even if the situation it looks hopeless. Even if the situation is not something you want to believe in, it believes that, man, love can work. And with that, it endures all things. And it never fails. If it's real love, if you say so, if you love something, let it go. And if it comes back to you, it's meant to be, as they say in the world. Well, in a sense, yes. Love never fails. It doesn't. Jesus said, Moses wrote you a writ of divorce, not because God wanted it, but because your hearts were hard. God hates divorce. Now, God gives a, a, a path out for divorce, but he says that if you guys love God, love will make a way for there to be healing there. Now, it may never be the same. It may, never be, it may always be scarred, but it can be healed. If both people are willing to love. So in English, as we get close here, I don't know if we're going to go long, but that's just the way it is today. We're robbed a bit. We get one word for love. Greek had many words for loves. One being phileo, brotherly love. Eros, meaning that like lustful love upon someone you find to be pretty or handsome. You, you don't love them for their sake. You love them for your sake. You want them to be with you as your trophy or whatever it is you want from them. There's storge, which is familial love, like you love your parents or you love your children. And then there's agape. There's, there's other words too. There's agape, though, is pretty much invented by Christianity from what I understand, meaning that God's love. It's unlike man's love. It's love intrinsically for the sake of love. It doesn't bring attention to itself like all those other things. Because man's love does all that. So no... Despite what the billboard tells you, love is not love. And God's love is not man's love. God's love is not lustful. God's love is not simply based on family ties. God's love is not simply based on who you are. It's based on the fact that he is who he is. That God is love, the Bible says. So don't try and put God into what you're doing and call it love when it's clearly not. Because God's love goes above everything. It trumps everything. 
Someone who just fell in love with Jesus has the same standing with God as someone who's been in love with him their entire lives. And in fact, God loves the unbeliever just as much as he loves the believer. He died for us all while we were yet sinners. But as we'll see in the next chapter, someone who speaks one sentence in love is better than someone with a lifetime of seminary behind them writing a book. If you can tell someone you love them and mean it genuinely in Jesus' name, it's better than the longest scholarly writing. And I believe the church misses this. We think that education trumps calling. We think status beats truth. We think wisdom comes from the crowd, but there's a more excellent way. And that way is love. And it's God's love. And it never, ever fails. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How does the church be healthy? How does the church grow? How do people come to faith in Jesus? By seeing our love for one another. Because if they see us biting each other, hurting each other, talking about each other, rejoicing when we fall or there's failure, why would they want anything to do with that? That is man's love. That is fair weather love. The team's doing well. Red Bull was great last season, so I'll be a Red Bull fan in F1. But when they, as soon as they do bad, I won't be their fan anymore. That's not true love. That's not true fandom. That's fair weatherness. And Jesus says in John 15, 9 through 19, I won't read it for time. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And these things I command you that you love one another. Read, read John 15, 9 through 19 later for homework. And let's go on and close here as we're going along. Verse 8b says, But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether, the, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. And that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror or darkened glass, tinted glass dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And the end is coming, not just of the world, but of prophecies, but of tongues, but of knowledge relative to one another. So, oh, he's so smart. Well, you call him smart because he knows more than you, right? That's, that's going to end one day. Because in heaven, we're not going to need a teacher. You're no longer in need to tell other people about Jesus in heaven because they're all going to know Jesus perfectly well. And we're all going to know each other perfectly well in heaven. There's not going to be this lack anymore. There's not going to be this this veil in front of our eyes that we need open through the word anymore. The word is going to dwell with us. And we're going to know it all. We're going to see it all. It's going to be paradise because why would we need the hope of heaven when we're in heaven? Why we've got friends coming for vacation and family coming this summer. And we're hoping and praying that it all works out. But when they're here, we don't need to hope and pray anymore. We just get to enjoy them being here. It's the same thing with heaven. We don't need hope. We don't need prophecies where we're going. Like in Back to the Future, he says, where we're going, we don't need roads. And then the car begins to hover and they take off. Where we're going, we don't need hope. Where we're going, we don't need prophecy and knowledge. It's all fulfilled 
there. And Paul compares it to childhood, which is interesting. Galatians 3.22 says, The scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under that tutor. Like Just like we go from the process of uh, para and epi, right? We have the law brought alongside us, and that brings us to faith. In the same way as we come under faith and we grow up in it, we, in a sense, don't need it anymore. We get the word to know why there's a K in the word know, and we all wonder, why do we have to spell it with a K? It's because it comes from the Greek, gnosko. Gnosko. It means to know intimately. I don't need to guess anymore. Like, in some things in the Bible, like, talk about faith. Like, I just have to believe that Jesus said what was true about moving a mountain. But I'm coming to the point where, even though I can't do it, I know my Lord. I know he said it. So I know it's possible. I don't believe in creation. I know creation happened. I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I know He's the Son of God. There's, there's no like, there, in the sense of, of course, I believe it, but it's not this, this faith that's without sight. It's this faith that doesn't know it personally. And the longer I walk with Him, the longer I come to personally just, you just know it. It's just intrinsic. I, just, there's no, I don't need to believe that you're my kids. You weren't here. Nine months later, you were here and I took you home. You're mine, right? You look like me. You sound like me. You act like me. I know that's it. And Rome had tutors, folks who were slaves that would raise your child, that would go with your child everywhere, chaperone them and teach them. And that's what the law does. But that's also what faith does. In faith, we must grow up into the things of God. We must go from being selfish and fleshly to being selfless and spiritual. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Don't worry, we're getting somewhat close here. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, this is a tough verse, and I believe Paul wrote it too. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God or the prophecies of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That is, believers, we need to grow up. That when you first come to Jesus, you are a baby, like my little baby over there. Can't even hold your head up, or burping, or pooing in your spiritual diaper. You need someone else to help clean you. You need someone else to help feed you. You can only eat the simple things of the word. But if you're my older kid's age and you're still in a diaper and you're not eating steak yet and you're still eating baby food, there's something wrong there as a believer. There's something wrong in the church when the church doesn't grow up in faith and exercises faith. And that comes through exercising. That comes through letting the baby stand, letting the baby walk, letting her, when she starts to move her mouth, begin to put food in it, just like in a healthy church. They begin to let people exercise their gifts in the body. But we must grow up. Because a mark of childhood is selfishness. Mine, mine, mine. My brother got a bigger glass of mine. Why did he get two cookies and I only got one cookie? I didn't play Nintendo today. They played Nintendo today. Most of childhood fights are all about the selfishness. So why are we like that as believers? 
Why are we like that in the church? Well, that's how mature are we? Do we love others? Do we rejoice over others? He says, Paul says, we see dimly. We got the windows tinted on the van last year. You can't really see in. You can see a little bit, right? But inside, you can see out fine. That's the same way with heaven. That we can see in a little bit now through the scriptures and through living. But from the other side, we can see perfectly well. My mom used to tell me, as my mom's parable as a kid, that on earth, my spiritual eyes are open a little bit. My earthly eyes are open a lot. I can see a lot of what's going around me in the physical, but sometimes I only get a little glimpse of the spiritual. But as I get to heaven, my spiritual eyes will be wide open as my earthly eyes close in death, right? Paul says, as we close, now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Why? Because all faith, hope, and love are all here on earth, but love is the one that goes on until eternity. Like I said, we don't need faith in heaven. We don't need hope in heaven. But guess what? We have love in heaven. And as we close, are our lives marked by love? Or is it just vain action that's worth nothing? Do we say we love each other, but then we don't actually serve each other? When we seek the gifts, we want to use them. Are we using them out of love or out of selfish pride or motivation? Paul says, Timothy's like-minded. I've got Timothy and I've sent him to you. But everyone else preaches out of vanity and self-glory. That's kind of scary. The church needs love and the church needs you and I. We need the Holy Spirit and His gifts to be the church. We need His gifts and spirits to have the gift of the Spirit to have love because it only comes from Him. And remember, the early believers called themselves followers of the way. So let's be the church and love one another, not with the world's love, not with some wishy-washy truthlessness, or we've lost sight of eternity and the power of love for eternity, but by self-giving, by laying our lives down, by treating others as we would want to be treated, as seeking heaven first in all things, because this is the more excellent way, the way of agape love of the Holy Spirit powering it all in our gifts, for ourselves, in ourselves, to be a part of God's body. And it only happens through His love. Amen? So God, thank You for Your love and thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the extra long time this morning. But we pray that Your Word would go forth, that God, You would fill us with Your love. You forgive us where we haven't loved others and help us love You and love each other and serve each other and care for each other uh, for You and with eternity in mind. And that's why love can suffer long, because it's looking forward to eternity. It's not worried about what it's going to get this week or this weekend or next year, or whether it even sees it happen in this life, but it waits to see it happen in the next one. So God, we pray you come soon. We look forward to the day when faith and hope can go away and we can just live in love and in complete perfect knowledge of you and see clearly. Thank you, God, for your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you in his face shine upon you there is a vineyard of the lord there is a vineyard for our soul with all our troubles left behind the door we drink first light until